0: Well, as I was alluding to earlier, communication uh, communication is a is a tricky thing. Uh, we have to know we have to be clear on not just what it is that we are trying to convey, uh, but how it is that it is a, you know that it is appropriate and right and consistent with that message to to convey it. Um, you think in terms of diplomacy and how uh, certain customs convey certain messages and if you're a diplomat you need to be aware of how a certain even a certain gesture or a certain action or just a simple way of expressing yourself could come across to the other party maybe in a way completely foreign uh, quite literally foreign uh, to you so diplomacy or closely related to that a budding romance you know the the sign that the, the signal that you send as Representing one gender to the other gender, maybe just completely misread. You know, in terms of, you, you, there could be an interpretation of a thing you've said, of a gesture, a way you've extended yourself, you know, in a way maybe you did or didn't mean to. The cues, the same cues can mean completely different things from one party to another. Communication experts will tell you that uh, it's at least as important in terms of interpersonal relationship and engagement with one another. It's not just the verbal component of communication that's so vital, but it is also the nonverbal cues. Our facial expressions, our gestures, you know, have a way of communicating things that we need to be aware of as as well. But we're pressing on towards, not quite at the end, we're one week shy of that, uh, through this ongoing series we call gospel-shaped outreach. This is the eighth of nine in that. And what we need to recognize here at this point is this. The message is absolutely vital. What we say is absolutely vital and essential. and We need to be squared away on what that is. But equally so is the manner in which we convey it. The two have to complement one another. They have to be consistent, one with the other. Both the what we say and the how we say it. The message and the manner. If you have a Bible with you, I'd ask you to turn with me to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you're trying to find that, that is in the New Testament. Uh, It's in the midst of a sea of T's, is the best way I know how to describe that. So you have 1 and 2 Thessalonians First and second, uh, Timothy, excuse me, and then Titus, okay? Then Philemon and Hebrews. That's another big marker there uh, in the New Testament. So if you're trying to find it, it's in the midst of those T's, about halfway through your your New Testament there. Uh, We are in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 1 and read all the way down through verse 16. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, going on down to verse 16. Hear now the word of God. but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But God's wrath has come upon them at last. Well, we need to pray together. Oh Lord, what, what does it mean what does it mean to be given such a, such a message as, as this? Even as Paul is speaking to the gospel of God here. What does it mean for us to be conveyors of that message? Who are we? And how could this be? And, and oh, how, how should we go forth? And what, what shape? Not just does the message take, depending on the context, but the messengers how are we to understand our, ourselves? How ought we to go? What is the, the posture and self-understanding? The calling that you have put upon us. We thank you for this text. We thank you for the images here that Paul uses uh, for this young church plant there in Thessalonica so many years ago. Um, yes, it was so many years ago. And yes, it was in a, in a foreign context, in a culture uh, very different from our own, but the concerns are the same. And we ask that you would help us hear. Help us hear, deeply so. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, context is everything. And uh, the context of one of Paul's letters is vitally important, especially when you're just kind of dropped down into the, the right in the flow of a, of a larger argument. So let me uh, try and get our bearings here as to, as to where we are, okay? So in verses 1 and 2, Paul's making it very clear that he is is hearkening back to events that his readers there in this young church there in the city of Thessalonica, he is hearkening back to certain events, in time and space, that they knew about. He's reminding them. And you see the way he's appealing to what you know and what you saw and you remember and that, that kind of, of thing. It's roughly 51 A.D., He's hearkened back to events that are recorded for us in Acts chapter 16 and 17. Again, reminding them of these things that they had heard about and witnessed uh, themselves. So just prior to his showing up there in Thessalonica and what we refer to as the second missionary journey uh, in Paul's life, um, he had been in Philippi. He and his missionary team had been in Philippi. And there you read about this in Acts 16. The, The team had been just ridiculously, unjustly uh, arrested and beaten and imprisoned. Now, as a, as a miracle, and because of a miracle, I'm going to take this coat off, sorry. It's just hanging up on the mic, and that's just going to cause a problem for about the next, well, however long I go. So here we go. All right, that feels better. All right, so uh, the unjust treatment there, the arrest and the beating and the imprisonment there in Philippi. They leave Philippi. They travel some 90 miles southwest to what we know today as Thessalonica. They settle in. The gospel, the message is positively received. At the same time, it meets this resistance from these Jewish antagonists. The antagonism against Paul and his team gets to be so bad, they, they foment a riot, a mob, really, that therein forces Paul and his team out of the city of Thessalonica in the cover of night. That's Acts 17. Okay? They know about it. Of course they know about this. They, they were witness to all of this. and So now Paul is in Corinth, miles and miles to the south. And he's gotten word, it's come to, it's come to his attention, that that antagonism up there that that young church of Thessalonica was undergoing has not let up at all. In fact, it seems to be intensifying. And those same opponents, those same antagonists, are now attempting to discredit the message of the gospel and the ministry of Paul and his team. And so, Paul, not to just, you know, defend himself or some selfish impulse like that, not that he's concerned about his personal reputation in and of itself, but rather for the sake of his hearers, for his listeners, for these people there in Thessalonica, he is mounting a defense. A defense of the gospel message and a defense of the gospel ministry. Harkening back to the, his time with them, reminding them of what they saw, reminding them of what they heard, coming back to this again and again. That they, look, you know, we, when we were in your midst, you saw this, you heard this, you experienced this. We're the real deal, in essence. And we delivered to you what could be called an otherworldly message, unlike any other the world has ever heard. And we came to you, in essence, as otherworldly messengers, carrying ourselves, bearing ourselves, in ways unlike any other messengers in in the world as well. And what's interesting to note is that as Paul is doing this, as he is, is, uh, well, uh, defending the gospel message and defending the gospel ministry as he's reminding them, hearkening the, uh, their attention, their memory back to what they had seen and heard and experienced. In doing so, he helps us to understand what it should look like still today and in any context and in any time and any place and in any period what it should look like to be, to convey, to bear the message of the gospel. that makes sense? As he's hearkening back to, look, this is how we conducted ourselves. This is the way we bore this before you. This is the way we were messengers of this message. It tells us what it should look like for us. It tells us what it should look like for us even still today. Put it this way. God has given us, somewhat similar to what I was trying to say last week, God has given us a message for this world. Now, that message is unlike any other that the world has ever heard. And we, as its messengers, are to go forth unlike any other messengers that the world has ever seen. Or if I can put it this way, there are four marks, marks of the gospel messengers that Paul puts out here in front of us. And it's there in your outline. We are to go forth, typified, marked by, because of the gospel, because of its effect in us, I'll get to that later, by these four things, by faithfulness, by gentleness, by diligence, and by boldness. Those four things, you see it in what he's saying here, in the defense that he is mounting for the gospel message and the gospel ministry, calling us back to these things. Let's take these in turn. Uh, first, faithfulness. Uh, let's look at verses 3 and 4. They're in, back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. Here Paul is alluding to this image, the faithfulness of a steward. The faithfulness of a steward. One has been entrusted with a treasure to steward it, to care for it well. And in doing so, he starts with a disclaimer just to set the record straight. Look, we, we did not come to you with a message that was half-baked or untrue. We did not proclaim it to you with, with uh, less-than-pure motives or dubious methods. We came to you with a, a true message of the facts of what we have known and seen and weighed and has been proven to be true, this message of the gospel, and certainly not out of impure motives, and certainly not out of you know mixed untoward methods he makes that very very clear rather we came to you as stewards god centered in everything we did in everything that we were about in everything that we said we came to you and he says this god approved god trusted god tested and in a sense with all of that kind of putting it under under this umbrella god known Known deeply and intimately by the one who sent us to you. So our chief concern really had nothing to do with trying to please you or earn your favor, but rather to please the one who is already pleased over us, God himself. That is our chief concern, his pleasure. The faithfulness of a steward. The faithfulness of a steward. Is is what Paul is alluding to, and, and I think it's, it's fair to say that a, a reasonable question to ask, and you know, just thinking about that, is, gosh, does does God still look at us, view us, test us, examine us in those ways still today? And the answer is an unequivocal yes. Yes. Now, on the one hand, that might unnerve you. That might make you feel pretty uncomfortable. It might make you feel somewhat disconcerting. Because, of course, that's a a pretty tight scrutiny to be examined by the true and living God. Uh, A pretty high standard. If He's the one assessing uh, your labor. But on the other hand, it can be beautifully freeing at the same time. Because... What sort of master are we talking about here as stewards? What sort of master are we talking about? One who is unlike all the others in this world that we could serve. And the gods of our imagining. The true and living God is impartial and merciful. So he really knows and knows us well. And he really loves and loves us well. And that's who we serve and that's who we are stewarding before, I guess you could put it that way. And as we know that, as we grapple with that, as we understand it, it impels us, it compels us to want to serve all the more faithfully to Him, knowing, oh my goodness, He knows me so well, and despite all He knows and sees, He loves me so deeply. So deeply. The faithfulness of a steward, that's the first mark. This message, God has given us this message. He's sending us out into this world as his messengers. The faithfulness of a steward. Oh, we should be going forth as messengers unlike any other the world has ever seen. That's the first mark. Second mark, gentleness. Gentleness, that's in the text as well. Let's go back to it, verses 5 through 8. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you, or from others though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. So here, Paul is alluding to, it's a different image. Before, it was the faithfulness of a steward. Here, it's the gentleness of a mother. It's quite stirring. It really, really is. And maybe it surprises you that, that, that Paul, this is Paul, right? The, the Apostle Paul is saying, we came to you with the gentleness of a mother. It's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. What does he mean? Well, first is another disclaimer, right? You know, just to kind of set the record straight. He says, look, we, we did not come to you with an eye for selfish gain. We did not come to you trying to puff you up with empty words and just vain speech. We we did not come to you wearing uh, hypocritical masks trying to cloak or hide our greedy desires to gain something from you. We did not come with an eye towards selfish gain. We did not come with an eye towards personal glory. And he makes mention, he alludes to the fact, look, apostles, that's who we are. And we know that, and you know that, but we did not stand upon that status and manipulate that to therein try and leverage that on you and create undue burden for you. We didn't do that. Rather, we came to you with the gentleness, as he says, the gentleness of a mother. A beautiful image of of both affectionate love and clearly sacrificial love as well. Deeply, deeply. So the implications being, we, we did not come with an eye towards using you for our gain, but rather pouring ourselves out for your gain, for your benefit, for your well-being. That's what he's saying here. That's the mark. That's the mark. The gentleness of a mother. Again, the, the, the essential point that it seems that Paul is making here is that it has to do with a, a giving of ourselves for the sake of others, not a taking, not of what we can get, but what we can give. With that image, it has to include at least this much: a, a glad, serving, an open-handed whatever it takes. Life of sacrificial love. Being whatever it takes. Doing whatever it takes for the sake of the other. That kind of love is the kind of love and approach that beautifully complements and is completely consistent with the gospel message that we bear. And that's part of the manner in which we have to speak it, in which it has to be conveyed and proclaimed with that sort of love. This beautiful familial image of the mother's love. Again, we've been given this message, a message unlike any other. We're being sent forth as God's messengers with this message and therein have to proclaim it, take it forth in ways unlike as messengers the world has never seen, never known. The faithfulness of a steward, the gentleness, the sacrificial love of a mother. Okay, it takes us to the third mark, the third of these four marks, and picking up now where we were left off in verse 9, diligence. A diligence. Starting in verse 9, for you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that you might not, that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So this is, you know, we just saw a familial image, a tender image of the uh, the um, gentleness of the mother, and now we're moving into something, same, you know, a household familial image, but now it's the Diligence of a father. And again, a disclaimer. Paul is, you know, he's being charged with these things. The message has been charged with these false accusations. So there's this disclaimer, setting the record straight. Look, we, he's kind of repeating himself from what he said a verse or two ago. We did not come in any way putting a burden on you. Rather, we worked hard. We labored with Diligence. We poured ourselves out so that we would be just the opposite to take burden off of you. He's alluding to the fact that he financially had been he and his team was supported by the giving of other churches. But when they got to Thessalonica, they were not going in any way to allow those people to give of themselves at that time. It just wouldn't have been appropriate. But rather, they were going to supplement what they had, were being given from these other churches by working. Paul, a tent maker, we know that from other. Passages, His own testimony, uh, working with those materials, likely preaching by day and working by night. And all the while, with showing forth the diligence of a father, he speaks to this instruction, charging them, encouraging them, giving a word fit for the occasion and the need, fatherly, paternal instruction. And at the same time, coupled with that, fatherly, paternal example. A model. He speaks of striving to live holy and righteous, blameless lives before them. Now that example, that paternal, fatherly example, has to complement and bolster the paternal fatherly instruction. You can't have one without the other. They have to be congruent. They have to complement each other. This is similar to what we were seeing already with the tenderness of the mother. That sacrificial love that complements, that bolsters, that fills out, that illustrates the very message that we are bearing. Well, here Paul is saying, he's speaking of that in in a different vantage point, though, the diligence of a father. Now, don't don't mistake here. Uh, I think it's be a unfortunate mistake to make at this point that Paul is somehow pigeonholing men and women at this point. That Paul is somehow encouraging stereotypes. That well, you know, it's only mothers that can be tender and only fathers that can, that's, that's not that's not his point at all. It's not his point at all. Rather, he's exalting both callings. He's exalting both callings by lifting them up and using them as illustrations. As what it looks like to be messengers of the gospel, mes- uh, conveyors of the gospel message. And again, the main point being there has to be a congruence between our profession and our practice, and a diligence in that, and a laboring in that. Uh, a, a, a diligence, a laboring uh, in what we, that what we say would line up with how we live. It's okay for other messengers not to live that way. Not messengers of the gospel. What we say has to line up with how we live. And how we live has to line up with what we say. There has to be that congruence. And Paul is making that very clear here. We have been given this message. A message like any other. We have been called to be His messengers going forth. Again, therein have to be messengers unlike any other. That takes us to the fourth and uh, the last of these marks, the mark of boldness. And this is somewhat more implied, but it's definitely there uh, and worth noting. Picking up in verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men, But it's what it really is, the Word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God and Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So, as as always, to fill up the measure of their sins. But God's wrath has come upon them at at last. Let me just say a quick thing as an aside here. I know Paul's language here, speaking of those Jewish opponents, sounds pretty rough. Um, It might even, you might be so tempted as to say, Paul is is anti-Semitic. Hold on. Paul is Jewish. (laughs) Um, He was a Pharisee. At one time in his life. okay, When he was Saul. If you go back and read the early chapters of Acts. This is in the context. Remember of what happened at Philippi. And what happened at Thessalonica. And really he's only reporting the facts. Of what happened there. And there. And back in Jerusalem as as well. And if we read the whole of Paul's writings. And particularly in Romans. He speaks of a man whose heart was broken. Absolutely broken and shattered for the well-being of his countrymen. So just don't go there. Don't let anybody tell you that that's what, what this is about in this place. What Paul is after here is he is speaking of the genuineness of the conversion of these folks there in Thessalonica, his readers here. And the genuineness of that conversion is borne out in the hostility that they bore and stood under. And then he goes on to talk about that hostility. Okay, And in so doing, he helps us to see that one of these marks is a boldness, the boldness of a herald, one who proclaims, one who comes and stands as the mouthpiece of one who is behind you, who is much greater. He is a herald. We are to be heralds. And again, there is something of a disclaimer. This is not actually explicit. It's somewhat implied. The disclaimer being this. It has to do with the message that this message is not of this world. It is not of man's creating in any way at all. In any way at all. And, and, and in fact, you see that in the way that, that Paul speaks of it here so, so clearly. It's rather the Word of God. And, and note how Paul commends his readers for rightly receiving it as such. There's no correction that he gives. There's no rebuke that he gives. It's not like, you know, where it was one of those uh, cities that Paul and his team went to on one of their missionary trips where some of the people heard their message and got down on their knees and began to worship the messengers. And Paul said, no, 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 no. We are but men like you. Or cases where an angel, in the scriptures, an angel appears before a human being and the human being is undone. And they fall down before the face of the angel and start to work. And the angel says, No, I'm but a creature like you. You don't get anything like that here. It's not that Paul says, Oh, no, no, no. You know, my ideas and my opinions on these things have just as much bearing as anybody else's. No. Paul recognizes that as an apostle, he speaks inspired words. This is the very message of God Himself. This is not a a human message. This is not something that comes from the earth, but from heaven to the earth. I guess we could put it that way. This message He delivered to them that they had heard that had begun to transform their lives had come from God through Paul to them. And so He spoke as a herald. He spoke as a herald as to the message itself, with authority, recognizing the authority behind him, and it was borne out in their how they received that, but it's also borne out in, in the, the boldness of his heralding capacity, I guess you could say, um, not just in what he said in terms of the proclamation of the message, but the warning that he gave as well. The, uh, the preparation that he gave because of the resistance that was sure to come. Let me try and unpack that. So there's a boldness to being a herald. So we have to speak the message, but recognizing at the same time, as Paul alludes to here, that there's certainly going to be resistance to that message. The source of the message itself is the true and living God. Given the source, it is going to meet the resistance of Satan's parasitic kingdom in this world. And that's what the people in Thessalonica were experiencing, the same thing that had been going on in Philippi and back in Jerusalem as well. Now we might say, well, why that resistance to this message, this beautiful message, transformative, life, soul-saving message? Why such resistance in the hearts of men and women all through history? Why that pushback? Because it is a direct challenge to our self-righteousness, our self-governing impulses, our self-dependency, our desire to be self-directing, the gospel is a direct challenge to all of that. And therein meets resistance within the human heart. So we have to be bold as heralds to proclaim the message itself and also honest and candid enough to tell people, and this is the resistance you will meet if you embrace this. It doesn't work well at a fundraiser. But it's the truth It's the truth. We have to go forth with the faithfulness of a steward, the gentleness of a mother, the diligence of a father, and then the boldness of the herald. Again, we've been given this message. A message like any other that this world has ever heard. And God himself is charging us to go forward as messengers unlike any other that the world has ever seen. This defense that Paul makes here in 1 Thessalonians, really the whole letters, much of that, um, this defense that Paul is giving here, therein gives us a picture of what it looks like to be messengers of this well message. But it does beg a couple of questions. Is this where I want to land this thing? Or how I want to land this thing? Two questions. Why... The messengers of the gospel need to be marked this way. Now I've kind of alluded to that several times already, but just to be very straightforward, just kind of come right back at it: we have to be marked with this way because that is the completely consistent with the message itself. I think this is something that the adult class was talking about just right in this room in the last hour. Then you don't. We simply cannot be living in a way that that speaks counter to or you know, belies our very claims at being believing this message. There has to be a consistency. There has to be a congruency. It has to be borne out in our own lives. That's why. But that begs another question. How? How? How on earth am I or you or any of us going to live like that this week? Because if you're thinking at this moment, I got that, you're not really hearing what Paul's saying. You're not really hearing the depth and extent and the heaviness of this charge. So, how? Well, the answer is actually a whole lot simpler than you may think. The way, the way that we, the only way, it's not one option among many. The only way that we can go forth in a way consistent with this message is to have been gripped and transformed by the message we bear. That's the only way. We aren't paid spokespeople. You know, I'm not a doctor, but I play one on TV. That kind of thing. That's not it. <laughs> we're not hi, we're not messengers for hire. We're messengers that have been changed transformed at the deepest level by this message that we bear. That's the only way we can go forth and be marked in these ways. At one level, we can say we've been sold on it. We know it's true. We've weighed the claims of the gospel. It's like Francis Schaeffer used to say, there's only one reason to believe Christianity. You know what it is? It's true. So we've weighed the claims and the counterclaims. We've examined the arguments. We've begun to doubt our doubts and done the hard work necessary to do that and go back to that again and again and again as we go through life. So we're sold on it. We believe it. We trust it. We know it's true. I remember years ago... Oh my goodness. I can't believe this is actually... I'm going to tell this story. But years ago... uh, I think it was between my junior and senior year of college, I was so desperate for a job. I don't think I'm going to insult anybody by any of your career callings here. That I took a job as a door-to-door vacuum cleaner salesman. I was so desperate. Um, Yeah, that's right. This introvert, really, I'm off the chart I. This introvert who never met a stranger he wanted to run from or didn't want to run from is out there on you know in strange neighborhoods he's never been to, with a map and a list of addresses, going door to door in suburbia, hoping that someone will open the door and be kind enough to let him in. Now you're thinking, what really? Why? What would on earth would impel you to do such a crazy thing? Well, part of it was desperation for money, but also I had seen the product at work. It did what they said. It was going to do. I'd bought in. In fact, if I'd had money, I had none. But if I had money, I would have bought one myself. So we're sold on it. That's where I'm going back We we go forth as messengers because we're sold on it. We believe it. We know it to be true. But it's it's beyond that. We've also been changed by it. Now, some of you can relate to this. You've gone on a diet of some kind because you know a nutrition counselor or a life coach or somebody has told you you need to you need to do this you know all your life you've been sick in some way or had a, a reaction or response and you never really knew what's going on why am i so different and finally somebody isolates it and say don't eat this or eat more of that and you change your diet and you feel like a whole new you and you're never going back because you've been changed okay transfer that over to this you're a whole new you, but in a whole much deeper way. A grander way, a much more, a beautiful way. We're talking not, not here about a diet plan, but about a person. You've met Jesus, the risen Jesus. And so, whereas before you were fearful, your, your courage is coming. The pride, Is giving way to humility. The guilt and shame is giving way to joy and assurance. The orphan has become a child. The enemy has become a friend. The exile has become a citizen. The aimless wanderer has become a beloved servant. Now, what happened? What happened? You breathed it in. You breathed it in. And now you cannot help but breathe it out. You've breathed it in and now you cannot help but breathe breathe it out. You you, you begin to recognize. you You don't even see it coming. The faithfulness of a steward. The gentleness of a mother. The diligence of a father. The... Boldness of a, of a hero. Why? Because it's an otherworldly message. And it's changed you. And that's how. That's how. And it's the only way how. Let's pray together.